Amen, amen. His love endures what? Forever. His love endures forever. Hey, before we get going, uh, I want to do something today. Sarah Manasse are here. This is, well, Manasse's here. I saw her go out with the baby. Are you going to text her and have her come back in? Give her the bat signal. Hey, so uh, Manasse and Sarah have grown up in this church, uh, gotten married, had a baby, and the Lord is calling them to move to Switzerland, and they're doing it this coming Wednesday. It was supposed to be last week, and they had a, got a cold, so they had to put it off by a week, but we are going to honor them and pray over them. Uh, and we're going to send them out and believe that God is going to make their path straight, uh, give them just divine appointments. Oh, there they are. Uh, so would you guys yeah, stand, come up to the front. And uh, those of you that know them, would you stand, come up? We're just going to lay hands on them and uh, just commission them, send them off. And uh, it's bittersweet. Like, um, be such a bummer to send you off, but I know this is going to be like the greatest adventure ever. I'm, a lot of me is jealous. And a lot of me is like, I wish you would stay. So... Uh, Would you just stretch your hands forward? We're going to pray over these guys. Lord Jesus, thank you for this incredible couple uh, that you put together, Lord Jesus. Ordain them to be together. Ordain their beautiful daughter, Hazel. We just pray this very moment that you would come to this place and you would bind them together and you would send them out. Lord, I pray that this adventure they're about to go on would be greater than they can possibly imagine. Heavenly Father, like I said, you would give them divine appointments. Lord, I pray you would go before them this very moment and just uh, smooth out every little trouble on the travel that's going to come. Lord Jesus, as they move from place to place and they seek to go about telling people who you are and what you're all about, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give them uh, just divine provision, give them every single thing they need over and above. Uh, Lord, thank you that they are sensitive to your voice and they listen to you. Would you go with them? Let your strongest angels guard them as they go. Lord, Our hearts are going to be with them, and we will miss them dearly here. Uh, But we just commission them. We give them to you. Lord, we send them out on behalf of your mighty name. Lord Jesus, we pray that they would uh, preach the gospel far and wide. They're living the great commission. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for them. Uh, Lord, we're with them in spirit. Would you bless them, guide them, take the best care of them, Lord. We place them in your hands, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, give them a big hand. We're excited for them. Here you go. Card from us. Card from us. <clears throat> Manasseh, how long have you been going to this church for? Whole life? Since 2007. The sister helped him. <laughs> A long time. <clears throat> what a wonderful day to be at church. Uh, you've heard us say quite often uh, in Engage Boise, uh, we believe if we love the family, then we can change the world. And it's bittersweet, but we get to do that directly by sending out Sarah Manasseh. We love them. We're proud of them. Uh, and they're going to go out and change the world and come back to us safely and hopefully soon. <laughs> um, man, we're, I want to say thank you to all of you who came to and were involved in our worship night this past Wednesday. Uh, it was awesome. All of you who participated in making it happen, who came, who brought somebody with you, especially Pastor Almeida. She put in a ton of extra time and effort, prayer into that night to make it unique. And uh, it was super awesome. Yeah, give her a big hand. I think she's still in here, yeah. Did a great job. And, uh, you know, I was dealing with asthma and the smoke and all that stuff on Wednesday. And uh, it's just hard to do one of those things uh, when, when your voice isn't feeling 100%. So just appreciate her doing that. Um, yeah, it was, it was an awesome night. So thanks for coming. We were talking with the worship team earlier about how uh, God just does things that only he can do. He knows who's going to be there, and he speaks, and he moves. And we can trust him to do that. And it was awesome. Uh, if you've never been here before, I'd love to meet you afterwards. My name is John. I'll be in the, uh, the, the uh, lobby afterwards, probably holding my coffee. I'd love to shake your hand on the way out. If I missed you, 
Uh, also, if you didn't know this, October is Pastor Appreciation Month. And uh, yeah, so I know it's kind of strange. You're like, uh, great, the pastor is telling us about Pastor Appreciation Month. <laughs> but more on behalf of the rest of our staff uh, than for myself. Uh, in the coming weeks, next week, week after, we'll have some cards out there that you can uh, write uh, thoughts in, uh, write them some encouragement. Uh, for me, over the years, I have treasured uh, thoughts that are written down for me on a piece of paper more than any uh, monetary gift probably I've ever gotten. Uh, that stuff just means a lot. Uh, ministry is just an incredible thing. When you uh, help at a church, when you work at a church, uh, if you are called to it, it's the greatest thing there is. If you are not called to it, I would just encourage you, don't try it. If you're not called to it, um, it'll chew you up and spit you out. But vocational ministry, um, it's an incredible thing when you're called to it, but it also can be a heavy burden, and there's a lot that goes into it outside of these four walls. So I encourage you, love on our staff. Think of a way you can tangibly bless them. Uh, Ask God for thoughts to write in a card. Give him a hug or a handshake. And if it's got a $20 bill in it, all the better. Um, just uh, take good care of our staff, and we'll give you some tangible ways over these next couple of weeks. Um, and just uh, appreciate them because it's Pastor Appreciation Month. Again, more, more of them than me. Um, I'm the one up here, but uh, they're the ones that make it go. So we're still, we are missing a few of our, uh, <clears throat> few of our people today. Pastor Wendy, she's up at a women's retreat along with a few of our ladies. We came back late last night. Drinking out of my Dodgers mug in sorrow. They were up 3-0 when I left. And when I got down here, they were down 5-3. Everyone had fallen asleep in the car. And I was sitting at a light. And I was, I'd, I'd taken my phone out. And I had opened up the app and saw they were down 5-3, just staring at my phone. And Chandra woke up. And she said, what are you doing? Because the light had turned. And I was just sitting there looking at the phone. So what are you doing? Yes, exactly. If you don't know, they won 111 games, and then they just flamed out in the playoffs. So whatever. It's just baseball. Got more important things to talk about today. Uh, this morning, we're going to jump straight into talking about uh, our psalm. Uh, if you are new with us, we've been, uh, we're spending some time in four different psalms. Uh, today, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 50. So you can turn your Bibles there, flip your devices there, uh, so you can be ready when we start reading it. Uh, if you want to catch the last uh, several weeks talking about the psalms, um, then you can go find it on our podcast. You can find it on YouTube or Facebook, any of those places. Just search for Engage Boise underneath those. I have been mentioning to you that we're going to talk about at least one psalm that was not written by David. A lot of people think David wrote all the psalms, but he didn't write all of them. And that week is this week. I had actually been set on talking about one that was written by the sons of Korah. Uh, because the, who the sons of Korah are is a really uh, interesting and cool story. And maybe it's just because I'm a boy, but I think this is a cool story. The, the story of the sons of Korah involves people being swallowed up by the earth. Like they were not being faithful to God. And this is how it worked back in the Old Testament. The earth opened up and swallowed them up. It's a story for another time. Uh, but that's not where the Lord led me today. Um, and I have to admit, sometimes, you know, when you do this on a weekly basis, sometimes when you're speaking on a weekly basis, it doesn't turn out quite how you thought it was going to turn out. Uh, I usually am like, you know, a couple weeks ahead as far as what I'm going to talk about and, and those kinds of things. Sometimes the passage just doesn't turn out how you thought it would. And this is one of those for me. It did not turn out how I thought it would. Uh, but this morning we're talking about Psalm chapter 50, when God breaks the silence. And this title, When God Breaks the Silence, actually comes from this devotional that I really love uh, called A Psalm in Your Heart, written by George Wood. Uh, he's passed away now, but he was the superintendent uh, of the Assemblies of God for the National Office. 
I heard him speak a couple of times, went to a thing, uh, like a, uh, a meet and greet at a house where he was at, just an awesome guy, and I love that book. But I want to give credit where credit is due, because I stole the title from him, didn't come up with it myself. If you look at the superscription of this psalm, the superscription is the part right under the chapter number there, it says Psalm 50, and under your, in there your Bible, it probably says something like a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph does have an interesting backstory, even if he didn't get swallowed up or his family didn't get swallowed up by the earth. Uh, You can have cool stuff happen even if you don't get swallowed up by the earth. And Asaph, if you've been in church, you might know that Asaph often has been called uh, one of uh, David's, King David's worship leaders. That's because in 1 Chronicles 6, we're not going to go back and read the whole thing, but there's this group of musicians, uh, Levites, that are tasked with leading the singing in the house of the Lord once the Ark of the Covenant is brought there. And we know that the Ark in the Old Testament carried the Lord's presence. And Asaph, specifically, this guy is mentioned in verse 39. But later on, 1 Chronicles 16, 4, and 5, we get a little bit more detail about Asaph specifically. And there it says this about David. It says, he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. So there's actually this group of people in the Bible, and they're referred to in the Psalms as the sons of Asaph. If you read through the Psalms, you're going to see some that say a Psalm of Asaph, um, and they might say some different things. But there's this group of people, and they're referred to as sons of Asaph. Um, Asaph himself, you'll hear people refer to him as David's worship leader. But all of these people, the sons of Asaph, they were skilled musicians and singers and poets, and they modeled their lives after Asaph. They had, took these gifts that God had given them. They dedicated them to the Lord uh, in service of the house of the Lord. And some of the psalms uh, that are attributed just to Asaph or his sons, they come from that group of people. Sons doesn't mean necessarily a biological sons, just people that were in his group. Many think, though, that Psalm 50 was written by the original Asaph referred to in Chronicles, but we don't know 100% for sure. But regardless, this is the heart that the psalm was written from. This is someone who led the singing and the praise in the house of the Lord, where the Ark of Covenant was, Uh, for King David. And Asaph, David's chief worship leader, he writes to let us know in Psalm chapter 50 what happens when God breaks the silence. So let's read it together. Psalm chapter 50. I'm reading the NIV to you today. We're going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll break it down. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. Bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? 
sacrifice thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. But to the wicked person, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw your lot in with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But I now arraign you and set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me. And to the blameless, I will show my salvation. It's deep. Some famous verses in there, too. The first six verses of Psalm chapter 50, we see this, that when God breaks the silence, the judge has come. The judge has come. Now, the concept of a judge is something that's familiar to us in our modern world, right? Uh, I would guess that many of you have seen uh, TV shows with, like, defense lawyers and juries and those kinds of things. Uh, Law and Order was a really popular one. My wife loves those shows. Uh, and a judge, the concept of a judge, it's something that's been a part of humankind probably for as long as there has been humans. There's always been a need for someone that can be a judge. And the most common way we think about it is what the dictionary definition is, uh, a public official appointed to decide cases in a court of law. And a judge in a courtroom like we commonly think of is someone who has studied the law. And when it comes to a criminal or a civil case, what the judge does is they try to interpret the law in an honest and a just way. You're probably thinking of all the TV shows you've seen, right? Um, any judge would probably tell you it's not always that simple. But that's the idea. They're supposed to interpret the law in an honest and a just way. And there's you know, on the TV shows, and I'm sure it happens in real life, there's defense lawyers who make their case and prosecutors who make their case. But a judge would tell you it's probably not that simple. I don't know if you've ever been a part of judging something that's subjective, but it's really hard. Um, we, we have this thing in the Assemblies of God in the youth department called Fine Arts. And uh, what Fine Arts is is a chance for kids, students, teenagers to use their skills that God has given them. So think singing, drama, instruments, art, photography, uh, uh, speaking, all kinds of stuff like this. Um, it's a chance for them to come to this festival, a two-day festival, and they, and they present their gifts. They put together a thing, and they present their gifts, and there's guidelines as to what they can and can't do. And what the network does, the network office does, is they put together these panels. They don't call them judges, because that's not a very kind word. They call them adjudicators. They put together adjudicators, and the adjudicator, there's three of them for each category. And you sit there, and you watch them do... Uh, do their performance. And if they score well enough, they can go on to the national competition. That happens every year, and the national competition has 10,000 kids at it. It's a big spectacle, awesome thing to get to go to. But for a little while, I got to help be an adjudicator in fine arts. I did it a bunch of years in a row. Um, so what they would do is they would find people that worked in the field uh, that these kids were doing this stuff in. So I was leading worship every week at the time, so I was always in the music division, in either playing or the worship leading or whatever. Um, and I'll tell you this, when you are uh, being the judge of a thing like this, sometimes their students, man, they have more talent in their pinky finger than I'm ever going to have in my life, right? They walk out and they just blow you away. And sometimes there are kids that are probably super duper talented, but just not at the thing that they're trying to do. 
at that moment. And it's really, really rough. Mostly, there's a lot of in-between. There's a couple of kids that are really, really awesome. There's some that they probably should have really, if someone was kind, they would have said, hey, you probably should try a different category. <laughs> this is very difficult. Mostly a lot of in-between. But the, so we have these papers, and they give us blanks to write stuff down on, and they have these categories where you, you judge it by a number, so the score comes up. And it's, um, it's, they try and make it fair, and they give us a lot of good guidelines. But the hardest part was always the little debrief after each performance because you don't only write on the paper, but the kid comes up, and you have, well, the next kids are getting ready. You have like two or three minutes to just tell them, hey, this is what you could have worked on. This is what was good. This is what we saw. And you always, you know, determine this order you go in. And uh, the hardest part was that. Uh, one, because it was usually kind of quiet in the room, so everyone could hear what you were saying to the kids. So I would always be like, hey, please play some music in between there. Like, I really don't want everybody hearing the things that I'm saying. And the worst was if the kids' parents came up behind you. Now, sometimes the parents really had a good idea of where their kid was. Sometimes they did not. Like, you know, for some of these parents, the, uh, this was the first step to, you know, being on American Idol. So sometimes you would, you know, some parents would think their kid's band was the most amazing thing in the entire world, and it actually probably wasn't really that good, and you had to break the news to them <laughs> softly. You know what? That was kind of all over the place. Here's what you did well, but that was kind of all over the place. And the thing is, uh, all of that judging, how we think of it, everything from fine arts to American Idol to the local court to the Supreme Court, all of that is subjective. There's some type of subjectivity in there. Even with a judge in a court of law at the highest levels, it comes down to an interpretation of the law. The attorneys make their case and the judge makes an interpretation. In this case, though, when God breaks the silence, God himself is the judge. And God himself has come to judge his people. And the difference is that God has created everything. He's created the surroundings. He's created the people He's created the natural laws that govern them. He's created the people that come up with the laws that we put in place on this earth. He's come up with all of that stuff. So God's judgment, now my judgment judging fine arts, you know, I could judge a thing and I could think it was not that good and someone else could think it was great and we have to meet in the middle. My judgment could be up for debate. God's judgment is not up for debate because he made it all and he knows it all. Let's look at those first six verses again. We're not going to read through them word for word, but you can see in verse 1, Whenever there is something or someone to judge, there are those that come to bear witness, right? You think of the TV shows, there's the jury there, there's always witnesses there. There are charges that are to be brought. And God's power is such, what the Bible tells us really poetically, is that God is able to call all of creation to bear witness as to what he's about to say. So God doesn't call people, he's like, ocean waves, come listen to what I'm about to say. Majestic mountains, come listen to what I'm about to say. And Asaph, interesting here, he uses what are accepted as the three most important Hebrew words that God is addressed as in the Old Testament. He uses, in the Hebrew, El, Elohim, and Yahweh. And those are the ones that are interpreted in your Bible there as mighty one, God, and the Lord in verse 1. And the reason Asaph is writing it down like this, what Asaph is getting at is he's saying, and this was really important in the Old Testament, this is not a false god or a representation of God. This is the creator God himself. It's not coming as a representation of anything else. It's not an idol. This is the creator God himself. The creator, the judge, 
He's broken his silence, and he's come. And he's calling everything from east to west as witness. That's one of my favorite poetic things in the Bible. From east to west just means all over the world, from one direction to the other, everything that can be covered. And verse 2 and 3 talks about how God speaks through natural earthly phenomena. It says here uh, in verse 2, if you look at your Bibles, it says that God shines down in beauty from Zion. All over the Old Testament, uh, and all over the Bible really, but especially the Old Testament, God is seen as light. Right, with the Israelites in the desert, remember how God led them at night, right, with a pillar of fire? And a cloud by day, and the cloud must have been bright enough they could see it in the midst of the daylight. In verse 3, it uses this concept, getting a little deep on you here, called theophany. Uh, and we see it other places throughout Scripture. And theophany is just a visible manifestation to humans of God. So God is manifesting himself physically in something that they can see. God's presence is seen on earth in the form of light. And the Israelites in the Old Testament, they knew that God was near when they saw him in fire and storm. It doesn't work that way these days. I kind of wish that it did, and I kind of am glad it doesn't work that way. It would be simpler sometimes if God just came in a storm and spoke, right? Here in Psalms it says, A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. It's actually really important this particular language is used because it goes together with what Moses wrote down in Exodus. I am going to read this to you this morning. Just before Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, I will read this. Exodus chapter 19, 16 through 19. Listen to this. It's going to sound familiar. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So God spoke in the thunder and the fire. One of the reasons I think it's important to note this is that we continually hear people ask all the time, does God still speak today? If God's real, does he still speak? Well, he spoke through nature then. Right? He spoke to them uh, in the mountains then, and, and they're writing it down in Psalms right here. And I believe, truly with all my heart, I believe the majesty of God's creation is speaking to us every single moment still. It's not the same. You know, it's not an audible voice very often. Thankfully, not as often in pillars of destructive fire and trembling mountains. But I can't help but see uh, God's hand at the base of a mountain range or as a lightning, hand, a lightning storm approaches. The point is that when God breaks his silence, he uses whatever he sees fit as his voice. He can talk however he wants to. Uh, yesterday, we were up at, uh, in Cascade at this retreat. And uh, I've been up to this place. Many of you have been up to Cascade, Donnelly McCall, right? It's beautiful up there. And that this particular campground, Trinity Pines, I've been to dozens of times, a ton of times to do different kinds of camps. And uh, it's beautiful and picturesque. It looks out on the mountains in this big grassy meadow. And uh, I walked out of the main building and just saw the mountains with the sun setting on them. And I've seen it hundreds of times, literally, and it stopped me in my tracks. It was just the beauty of God's creation. If you're wondering if God still speaks, he does. Sometimes we have to turn our phones off and get outside the city to see it. 
but he does. See, when God breaks his silence, he uses whatever he sees fit as his voice. And what it's referring to specifically in Psalm 50 is that eventually God is going to come in fire and tempest again. Thankfully, he's not doing it now, but he is going to come in fire and tempest again. He might not be doing it now, but he did it in the Old Testament, and he is going to come again. If you read Revelation, you're going to see there's fire and tempest in there. Verse 4 through 6, they let us know exactly who eventually God is coming to judge, and now we're getting to the point. You see, as humans, we like to think that it's everyone else that God is going to eventually judge. You read in the Bible about God judging, and you think it's everybody else. But we have to understand that what this verse says is true. Look at verse 4, verse four tells us. It says, he summons the heavens above and the earth. Look at this part, that he may judge his people. You see, in the Old Testament, just as it is now, it's a temptation to apply God's word to others and not to ourselves. Right, so it's a temptation to read this. He may judge his people and think, yeah, God, will you please judge my next door neighbor? The guy across the street, Lord, I really think he needs some judging. I was getting on the freeway and this guy cut me off. He had a swear word bumper sticker on his window. Lord, I really think that guy needs some judging. See, the process God is going through is he breaks the silence. In verse 5 and 6, gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Sounds a lot to me like he's describing the people uh, he loves who go to church. Sounds to me like he's gathering the people who, if they had a choice, would call themselves his. Sounds to me like he's speaking to us. And the heavens themselves are letting God's people know that the creator has come. So what is it that God, if we're his people, what is it he could be bringing against his own people? Well, verse 7 through 22 tells us this. We're not going to read it all the way through again. But verse 7 through 22 tell us that when God breaks the silence, the truth is coming. The truth is coming. The truth is always good, but sometimes and is often painful. Many times it takes uh, irrefutable evidence for the truth to actually be made known. And always the truth is needed to accurately be able to assess the condition of something. That's the pain of watching uh, the Dodgers yesterday, right? They won all these games. <laughs> they get in a three-game or five-game series, and their pitching just wasn't good enough. That's the truth. <laughs> the truth is always good, but sometimes painful. You know, it's always interesting to know how people are wired differently. Oftentimes, man, I, we see this over and over. God brings people together to be married, and they have opposite gifts. And together, they can be powerful. It's like a superpower, superpower if they get it right. You know, I share this kind of stuff about Chandra with you all the time. Uh, one thing I love to do and feel like I'm pretty decent at is estimating. I love estimating stuff. But ever since I was a kid, I don't know why I do this. This is probably weird, but I would like see the time in the morning, and then uh, I would purposely not look at the clock for a while, and then try and guess how many minutes had passed. Just fun to do. I don't, I don't know why I like to do that, but I did. Uh, my wife, man, if there is not a clock uh, in front of her, it could be one minute, it could be one day, and she would really not have any idea how much time had passed. 
And we just figured out early on, she's not good at estimating. She would, she would uh, gladly admit this to you. Um, it's just a, a gift that God has put in me and not one he's put in her, and we'll kind of get through it in a second. So some of you know we have this daughter, Christina. Uh, she lives in Twin Falls now. We adopted her when she was 13. We've been married about a year. She came to live with us, and everybody knows that 13-year-old girls, they attract 13-year-old boys, right? And uh, at the time, I had been a youth pastor. That's how we met her. She got saved in our youth group, and uh, that's how we met her, and we adopted her. And the next church we went to, I was a youth pastor for a little while, and, uh, um, and you know, she is awesome and beautiful, and of course, boys came around. And uh, man, it confounded her that I did not have to be around a boy for more than like 30 seconds to be like, mm. <laughs> guys, bad news. Sorry, sweetheart. <laughs> And I was telling someone the other day, man, I would walk up and just be so obnoxious, awkward in the middle of conversations when I saw a guy talking to her. I was the worst, I'm sure. And Chandra had a hard time understanding it, too, how I could see a guy within 30 seconds compute good news, bad news. <laughs> I got news for you. 99% of them were bad news. That's just the way it is when you're a teenage boy. <laughs> and I told her, sweetheart, listen, part of it is I was once a teenage boy, so I know what they're thinking about. Part of it is I've been a youth pastor. Part of it is I ask God to give me wisdom. Between those three things, you're pretty much hosed. <laughs> and Sean would always be amazed how I could tell, you know, from miles away whether a guy was good news or bad news. You see, I'm likely to assess any situation based on the information that I have, and then sometimes with some discernment. If it's a thing like my daughter, right, I'm going to pray and ask God for discernment. And then I'm going to go look for the quantitative data to back it up, right? I don't just want to make a snap judgment and not look any farther. I'll go try and find out, you know, if the, uh, the guy's good news or bad news. I got news for you. I've been 100% on the guys so far, whether they've been good news or bad news. She's not currently dating a guy, so I can say that. <laughs> now, my wife, man, she's the opposite. You guys know many of you. She's an accountant. She's likely to go straight to the numbers. If there's an equation for it, if there's an Excel spreadsheet for it, she wants to use it. And then she's going to do... The opposite that I do, she's going to go see if the results bear out what the numbers told her. Wow. It's easy to go based on a gut feeling and miss something really important if you go, don't go do some investigation. That would be my temptation, right? I have this gut feeling and I don't go investigate. It's also easy to just look at the numbers and then miss the nuance of a given situation. That's a temptation for someone like my wife. And the best thing is, of course, somewhere in the middle. When we're communicating and we're, and we're doing it well, we can get a lot done. But what we have here in verse, verses 7 through 15 is a situation where God is speaking to his people. And God's people, they feel like they have been doing what God asks. But when it comes time to hear from the one who sees all and knows all and created it all, the truth says something different. We see in verse 7 that God has established his authority, but look who he is speaking against, right? He's just doubling down on this. Listen, my people, I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. He's talking here to Israel, the people that he has chosen. So friends, understand, if you know God in here, the vast majority of you in here, if not all of you, would say you know God. In this psalm, he is speaking to us. And so now we're prepared for God's charges against us, right? We read this first part. God's going to come in fire and wind and tempest and earthquakes. 
We realize it's against us. And if you're like me, you probably start going through a list in your mind. Well, God's going to investigate me and charge me. So, man, I better think, have I been going to church? Did I miss any days? Did I avoid any bad words lately? I thought a few, but I don't think I said any of them. Did I wear my best church clothes? Right? Mostly what we're asking as God's people is, have I been a good Christian? God's coming to judge me. Have I been a good Christian? Listen to what verse 8 says. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. It's a little confusing because God says, I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices. And remember who it is that's writing this down. Asaph, David's chief worship leader. He's also a Levite. He would have been very familiar with bringing the physical animal sacrifices to the house of the Lord. Probably the best part of his job was the singing of the songs. The worst part was the sacrificing of the animals, I would guess. But this was part of the job of the tribe that Asaph belonged to. So he knew what he was talking about when he wrote this down. It says right there, God says, you are always bringing me burnt offerings. But something really critical has happened to the Israelites that also tends to happen to us. You see, the Israelites, they've gotten more focused on sacrifice than the heart that brings the sacrifice. And in our rush to be good Christians, we sometimes forget to value what God values. I'm saying we, including myself in the equation here. Look again at verses 9 through 13 with me. I have no need of a bull. These are famous verses. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Goats? And this passage is beautiful, and I think it's really poetic. If you've been in church, you've heard the scripture, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We've all heard that one. But I think it's beautiful because Asaph, he manages to do two things at once. He illustrates God's majesty while also illustrating this concept that often God does not need what we think he needs. What a huge concept this is if we just try to zoom out, that every living thing on earth belongs to God. Of course, I went and typed that into Google, how many living things are on earth. Our best estimate is that there are around 20 quintillion animals and insects on the earth. That's 20 with 18 zeros behind it, or 20 billion billion. Of course, that's a mathematical equation, right? No one's counting them out. This is also a critical difference between the one true God and the many pagan gods that would have been popular when this was written. You see, pagan gods, they required specific sacrifices in order to survive. That was what they believed. You had to bring a specific animal, or in many cases a human, in order for the god to continue to live. That's how they justified it. What Asaph is telling us, what God's saying is that everything that is made already belongs to the one true and living God. Even for the richest people on earth, then as it is now, what we own, it pales in comparison to what God owns. God sees Elon Musk and he's like, it's nothing. You see, friends, we have to understand we can't give to God something that he already owns. He has all the stuff. 
Israelites, they weren't told to bring sacrifices because God was hungry. So if that's not the reason, then what's the reason? It's outlined for us in verses 14 and 15. Sacrifice, thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. You see, when God created us, he gave us this awesome thing called free will. God gave us free will, right? We are allowed to, as humans, we can live as we want to live. We can worship as we want to worship. Something that I heard a long time ago that has stuck with me, everyone worships something. Even if you don't say you worship the one true God, everyone worships something. Everyone bows to something. But we've been given free will to surrender to whatever it is we want to surrender to. And because God gave us that free will, his desire is just this one thing. And that one thing is that we would bring our sacrifices with a thankful and joyful heart. It's not the thing we bring, it's the heart that we bring it with. And our offerings and our traditions, they should be tangible expressions of what's going on in our heart. We can draw a line between the sacrifices they made in the Old Testament and church that we do now. So the question that we have to ask is, Am I living how I live because of an obligation? Because I'm going to check a box. Well, I'm a Christian, so I better go check my church box. Or is how I live an expression of the thankfulness and the joy in my heart? I realize it's a really hard thing to define, and I, I, I couldn't define all of it for you exactly. But verse 15, it makes really good progress in doing that for us. Call on me. In the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. So many times I'm finding in the word of God, he gives us these little equations, right? Call on me when you're struggling. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Hmm. So you see now it comes back to that thing we talked about last week, which is uh, who or what are we placing on the throne of our lives? Now today, because Jesus has come, and he's died, and he's risen, we don't need to bring sacrifices of bulls and goats. For us, it looks more like coming to church, right? We come to church and we give in the offering. We keep up certain traditions we've learned over time already since I've been here in the past year. We've laughed about traditions that used to happen in the assemblies, right? In the assemblies of God, if you've been a part of the AG. And even being a good Christian, right? You used to not be able to go to bowling alleys or movie theaters or use playing cards or anything like that. Mixed bathing, right? No swimming with people of the opposite sex. And that's what these sacrifices look like, keeping up certain traditions we've learned over time. Not that a lot of those aren't good things, but sometimes those things become more important to us than what's actually happening inside of our hearts. And that's why this was written down for them in the Old Testament. And what Asaph is getting at here and what we need to know today is that the condition of our heart is more important than the physical gift we bring, the action we take. Now, the physical gifts we bring in the actions we take, they will spring out of the condition of our heart. And to be sure, when we rely on God, as verse 15 says, our heart becomes thankful. And when our heart is thankful, a natural result is that we, we bring every part of our life to God. And we're thankful for what we have instead of frustrated about what we don't have. It creates a heart that's in the right place. So the question is, does God need our hearts to survive? I don't think so. Does it please him uh, when, we, when we love him in that way? I think it does. He doesn't have to have it. 
but he loves it when we bring it to him. The thankful heart is what's most pleasing to God. Church is awesome. I love church. Every single Sunday and Wednesday for as long as I am able, man, I'm coming to church. But John's thankful heart is what he wants more than me coming to church. And that's the message for us who we call ourselves God's people today. Because the truth is sometimes in church we get more focused on tradition than the condition of our heart. All of it is good, man. What we do here is good. We strive to make it good and genuine. And all of it's good when it comes from a heart that's in the right place. And when God breaks his silence, he says to us, his people, he says to us, do it all with a thankful heart. So God, he's brought these accusations against his own people. And now he's going to bring accusations against those who do not know him. As verse 16 says, the wicked. Look at verse 16 to 20 with me really quickly. But to the wicked person, God says, what right have you to recite my laws? Or take my covenant on your lips. You hate my instruction. Cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil. And harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother. And slander your own mother's son. We can kind of zoom out and we can say that verses 7 through 15 that we just talked about. They dealt with how we relate to God. Or the first half of the Ten Commandments. And it can be said that these verses that we just looked at, they speak to how we interact with everyone around us on this earth, the second half of the Ten Commandments. And God, really helpfully, he gives us a list here of how we can know if our heart is wicked and far from God. He gives us concrete ways, God does right here in the Bible, to identify those who are far from him. Not people who, uh, like many of us, who belong to God, but we occasionally need to make an adjustment in our heart but those whose actions prove that they do not belong to God at all. And like I said, you'll notice these verses, they track really close with the second half of the Ten Commandments. Verse 16 talks about pretending to obey God's commands while never actually intending to obey them. That's the worst kind of disobedience, right? If you've got kids and they say they're going to obey you and then they don't, that's the worst. You'd rather they just say, I'm not doing that then you can just skip straight to the punishment part, right? (laughs) And not pretend about the rest. And God is warning the wicked, do not pretend to obey me. Don't speak my words and say that you believe him with no intention of actually doing them. Verse 17 talks about refusal to listen to God's word even when it's spoken clearly. A sign of a heart that is far from God is knowing what's right and pleasing to God Knowing his laws, but just actively choosing to do the opposite. And God is warning us, don't hear my commands and turn the other way. Verse 18 talks about going along willingly with an ungodly lifestyle. It talks in there of joining in with thieves. Uh, A sign of a wicked heart is seeking any gain that's dishonest. If we are looking to get something that is not gained in an honest way, it's, uh, that's a sign of a wicked heart. And notice it doesn't even say those who commit adultery, but it says those who spend all of their time with adulterers. And that's interesting because as believers, we have to be able to be a light in a dark place, right? Someone needs to tell thieves and adulterers about Jesus. But we must not live in a way that condones actions that God says are wrong, right? We can witness to people. We can tell them about the Lord, but... We can't live in a way that condones what God says is wrong. 
what God says is wicked. Verse 19 and 20 talks about speaking in a way that does not honor God. We can get in these semantic discussions about the meaning of words, right? Uh, you know, in, in Bible college, you always get in these deep conversations about whether swear words, the word themselves, are actually bad. Who says that that word is actually a bad word? It's not in the Bible. Show me in the Bible where God defines cuss words. It's kind of a silly argument. But what God is telling us here is that it matters what we say. The heart that it comes out of matters. And what comes out of our mouth as people, it can be a sign of either a surrendered heart or a wicked heart. Simply speaking things that are wicked, outright telling lies or telling half-truths, those are signs of a wicked heart. Verse 20 talks about slander, saying something that's wrong about someone. It's a sign of being far from God when we will lie about someone else for our own personal gain. If we're willing to lie about someone else to get something we want, then we need to examine our hearts. But after this list of ways to identify a heart that's far from God, God wants us to know something very, very critical in verse 21. Look at this with me. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But now I arraign you and set my accusations before you. You need to understand this as God's people on this earth. We must not mistake God's silence for his approval. Just because he's quiet doesn't mean that he approves of your actions. If we're doing all the right things on the outside, but inside our heart is the farthest thing from thankful, or we're just simply living in a way that are wicked. We can't mistake God's silence for his approval. And verse 22 tells us of the eventual consequences that come if we don't turn towards God. You can see verse 22 there. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. The eventual consequences. You see, when God breaks the silence, he lets us know in no uncertain terms that a lifetime of disobedience, it will lead to destruction eventually. Even if you feel like God is silent now, it will lead to destruction eventually. But you see, there's one more thing we have to know, and that's this. Number three, when God breaks the silence, the advocate has come. You see, as direct as this psalm is concerning our disobedience, and you know, when I read this and I dig into it, I identify with that first part. And I want to pray, Lord, please help me not to be more about the tradition than about having a heart that's right with you. But the key word of this whole thing is that last verse in verse 23. You see that in your Bible there? The word salvation. I will show my salvation. Those who sacrifice thank offerings to me and to the blameless, I will show my salvation. You see, even if it seems we're getting away with just going through the motions, or even that people are getting away with a lifestyle that's wicked, it's not that God doesn't notice. It's that he's giving us as much time to repent and to return to him as possible. As we say over and over again, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. And the reason he might be silent is because he's giving us as much time to repent, return to him as possible. And though Asaph, he didn't write it down exactly like this. This was way before Jesus came to earth. The New Testament completes the picture for us. We started out talking about how God is the judge. 
knows everything, made everything. He can judge fairly. But I'm so thankful that when God broke his silence, he also sent the defense attorney. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says this. Man, this, this is so powerful. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, if you've ever seen those uh, trial TV shows, the thing about a defense attorney, the best ones in the shows, they're always the ones that know every detail of the case and every detail of the law better than anyone. Right, the defense attorney comes in and they know everything and they've studied and they've got a special way of looking at the case. They come in and they save the day, save the innocent person. And because they know all the details, for that reason, they can mount a defense. You see, God is so good. And he's not only the judge over all creation because he made it all, but he also sent us one who can defend us. And that one his son Jesus, our advocate, our defender. He knows all the details of God's law as well as the deepest parts of our hearts. And you see, because Jesus, if you read the New Testament, we talk about this more around Christmas and Easter, but because Jesus came to earth and he faced every temptation we'll ever face and he felt every emotion that we'll ever feel, he can effectively go to his Father. And he can make a defense that needs to be made. He's saying, ah, Father, I took this on myself. Ah, I know how they were feeling. There's forgiveness. So the solution for a heart that has maybe become more focused on ritual and tradition than thankfulness, it's our advocate and our defender, Jesus. And the solution for a heart that is wicked, also our advocate.